0: Coca, su narra, su narra y enti. Coca, su narra, su narra y enti. Coca, su narra y su narra y enti. Coca, su
1: narra y su narra y enti. Coca, Mango TV Podcast? Today we have Marianne Costa. Marianne was born in 1966. She holds a Master in Art in Comparative Literature and is a renowned tarot expert. Together with Alejandro Zdorovsky, she authored the bestseller, The Way of Tarot. She has published several books translated in various languages, collaborated with the institutional Museum as a symbology expert, more recently with the Guggenheim Collection in Venice. Her last opus is an essay on tarot history. Symbolism and Iconography, le tarot Papa, tarot step-by-step, step, already available in French, Spanish, and Italian. Her polyphacetic career includes being a professional actress and singer, writing and translating poetry, novels and essays, and teaching groups worldwide in tarot, transgenerational psychology, and what she calls healing fictions, an original technique that combines and surpasses therapy, self-development, and artistic expression. Her base is in Paris, and she has been a passionate tango dancer and singer for the last decade. Welcome, Marianne.
0: Guilty as charged for tango. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. So just to give you a little bit of context on, on why you're here, you know, Mango TV is known for mostly for psychedelic uh, medicine, exploration and massac- psychedelic science with our documentary and then our blogs and recently with our podcast. And that was the initial, you know, beginning of our production around psychedelic science. And that triggered an interest in uh, non-ordinary state, the healing power of non-ordinary state, and what psychology called transpersonal psychology, so what comes outside your biography. You know, Stan Stan Groff, who was the godfather of uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, said that uh, Freud was fishing sitting in a whale, on a whale. And uh, I was always intrigued by by this quote, and I'm just now start to understand what it means. So there is a lot to unpack here. As usual, I'd love to suggest maybe a 45, 60-minute conversation. If we could, I would start with Tarot, of course, which you are the one of the world experts. Then I would talk about transpersonal and what you do specifically, which is transgenerational psychology. I would talk about the, your methodology that we mentioned in the biography called Healing Fictions. And finally, I would like to see if, you know, we can integrate all this into what we like to call modern mysticism or modern seeking and, um, and eventually also the, the, the importance of art. and creativity in spirituality. So let's jump in about, tell us a little bit uh, about what tarot are for people that don't know.
0: (laughs) So tarot is initially it's a card game and it's actually a fighting game, like any deck of cards is. The idea is you have four realms represented by the four colors. In each realm there's a very uh, specific hierarchy where usually the king is the potency. And tarot was invented around the middle of the 15th century, probably in Italy. And there's a suit of cards in the tarot called the trumps or triumphs, which are 22 cards that are meant to defeat any of the four realms. So the origin of tarot is, for me, is anchored in the obsession of the Middle Age and Renaissance for individual salvation. Mm And and we could sum up the idea of salvation, whether it's in a you know faraway paradise or whether it's being like established in what the Buddhists call the nature of the mind as losing the fear of death, which is for me very relevant to what you said about the psychedelics because the, the end the end, like end result of such a state where there is absolute connection and freedom and kind of oneness with everything is that fear of death disappears unless you know you're tripping in a bad way. Mm. So when Taho was played, It was played at the court of Louis XIV. It was played throughout the 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th century. And the notion of Trump was revolutionary in the game because it creates combinations of alliances and being able to, you know, play with three players or four players or five players. It's the ancestor of bridge and whist and all those games. And at some point, it kind of like grew out of fashion while which was the 19th century, the the, uh, industrial revolution happened and and basically religion became politics. Mm. So there was, for me, the way I look at it, at the way the masons and the esoterists and also the card readers, the basic like, you know, future fortune tellers, rediscovered the tarot as some kind of language of the soul in the 19th century. It's not just an abuse. The 19th century was reading Anything, like, you know, rat's dung or, you know, ashes or, you know, candles. Coffee, yeah. Exactly. But the tarot was a way to reconnect because the trumps in the tarot, they're basically the description of an inner and outer pilgrimage. It could be the pilgrimage of Santiago de Compostela. It can be an inner journey. It has connections with the alchemy. You have very scary figures like death or the devil and very dreamy figures like the star or the sun. And it's literally, it's a visual journey, like the cathedrals were basically comic books of the spiritual path. And of course it's connected with the fixation of attention because playing cards needs you to focus your attention. Mm. Except that when in the 19th century they start looking at those cards again, and the masons say, oh, it's it's the Egyptian symbolism. And, you know, Marianne Lenormand, who was a very famous fortune teller, says, no, no, it's a device for reading the future. It's basically people starting to look at symbols that comes from the Renaissance and be touched by the impact of the poetic and spiritual impact of those symbols and translating them into what was the new age of the time, which was, you know, talking to the dead or trying to fathom the future or the, the worship for, for high magic. Eliphas Levi, who was the great theorist of, of high magic, considered the tarot to be the key of the high magic. So we need to go into the early 20th century to see the surrealist movement, which for me is a very important artistic like ground in what we're talking about, look at the tarot as a naive you know, cultural device and say, no, it's a map of the unconscious. It's a dream map. And from then on, it stops being just a device for reading the future or anything, and it becomes a secret ally for psychology, for coaching, for storytelling, until writer Italo Calvino realizes that fortune-telling and card-reading is a way of storytelling and mm-hmm. writes Il, Il Castello dei Destini in Crociati, the castle of, how is it, like...
1: Cross-destinies.
0: destinies which he based upon a random tarot spread. So that's the way I work. I work with the tarot as a book that never tells the same story twice, mm. as a myth that will be tailored to anyone's question by fragments because you extract Three cards from a pack of 78, and as a means for both fixating the attention so that our brain works differently from the habitual everyday use, which is usually very left brain dominated, very like end gaining, very opinionated,
1: rational, ba- organized,
0: and bound by the negative bias of survival, mm. which is very important in neurology. And suddenly, Tahoe. Kind of allows us to bond the two the two sides of the brain because contemplating images activates the right brain. The, th- this is now we enter in the way I teach a, a basic attitude of grounding into the bodily sensations, of voluntary, I would say almost voluntary holiness or, sa- or sainthood, voluntary empathy to the other person. And in the end, the linking of two. Uh, nervous systems that leads to what we call telepathy which is a natural human state when you start activating the brain capacity outside the, the, the box literally like the head we are electricity our, our thinking is electricity so if we connect our hearts literally like physically the, 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 you know even at the distance of the podcast there is a place where our bodies touch in a way and our thinking touches, and by focusing on the images, the cards, the meaning, and efforting to translate it to translate it into words, we reach a space of complete oneness, which is akin to dancing tango with someone, to some states that you can reach in contact dancing. To I've, I've practiced the Feldenkrais method, so when someone is really, very deeply touching your body in a way that evokes the learning capacity of the. Uh, nervous system, you kind of loop two nervous systems together and you and you get into a state of enhanced trance or like in a high state of per- performance when the person who is on stage and the public are one. So you know Tahoe adds a vocabulary to that. And there's a whole learning of the grammar and the symbols that is absolutely wonderful. And that's the work I do with the museums, that's the work I do with people who are interested in the the verbal aspect of it. But the practice of it is actually very akin to a deep state of hypnosis. Fascinating.
1: So, but let me ask the skeptic question. So, you mentioned this sort of morphogenetic field that we intertwine when we're next to each other. And this, we can... Talk about a field of of your heart, of your energy, which goes behind your body, few meters. But can in your better word explain a little bit, you know, when someone takes these three cards, yes, what is the energetic situation happening there?
0: I have no idea. I've spent the last twenty-five years of my life. Wondering. And I think this is what keeps my marriage with the tarot alive. Because otherwise, I would get really bored. You know, I spend like maybe a fourth to a third of my active time working with a stupid pack of cards. So, you know, it's. With clients? With, with clients, with teaching, with, you know, like I did in the Guggenheim Museum. I came and kind of like interacted. They had a, a surrealism and they still have a surrealism and magic exhibit. So I came and I did a series of performance and and dialogued with the curator. So I keep coming in and bringing back the language of the Tahu, which is a decimal numerology inherited from Pythagoras, which is symbolism from basically the Italian painting of the Quattrocento of the 15th century and, you know, at large Christian symbolism and Judeo-Christian symbolism which is just like playing the game that by choosing cards by chance, you reach what, ch- what the surrealists named le hasard objectif, objective chance, objective hazard, I don't know how you can translate it, which is a way, I have only a poetic way of defining it. Even though I work with, you know, neurologists and stuff, is that there is an intelligence of life, there is an, an organic and cosmic intelligence of life, both in the in matter and in what is behind and beyond matter, that we can access through playing. This is what Andre Breton kept doing. He kept telling his surrealist friends, alors on joue, so let's play. And play, which is what musicians do, which is what, what actors do, which is what the tarot is meant and for. And children, yeah and children which is what which is what conditions in childhood our process of learning and error which is the essence of creativity by deciding by by making the pact that we will play with the pack of cards the only thing i can tell you with literally 25 years of experience at my back is that I have a very specific keyword vocabulary for the cards. So any of my students can sit next to me, you know, you, you blindfold them and put something in their ears that, so that they don't hear. I do a reading and they will give basically like 45 to 65 percent the same interpretation in the same words. Mm-hmm. What happens? People take the cards and they talk about their current or past or the past situation that influences their question. Of course, then the the art is to have a deep enough resonance with others, a deep enough set of tools, a deep enough set of, you know, uh, uh, skillful means, a deep enough understanding of human psychology so that you can help orient the person further. That is the whole, like, hidden part of the iceberg. But the vocabulary of the tarot is always accurate. I do not know why it just happens yeah yeah so it you might be
1: it might be the it might be the vocabulary of the subconscious i i, I remember i had like this 2 3 years uh, practice with the iboga which is a, a root from uh, gabon and the and the facilitator the, the guide the, the shaman was saying that you know the subconscious does not speak english the subconscious speaks in image and sound and feeling and so if you you need when you take the substance and the subconscious material comes out, it doesn't come out telling you things in English. It comes in images and you need to decipher that and you need an expert that make you understand what does it mean the, you know, red triangle or that door and guiding you through that door. And so this imagery that you said was based on the Italian painter of the 400 and 500, makes total sense to me. Yeah. The fact that it's 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 maybe like archetypal material that 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 trigger deep stuff that is in our subconscious and even you know in our DNA. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I, you made you make so much sense to me because one of the practices that I work with is something that is akin to Eugene Gendlin's focusing or like you know somatic like mm, somatic accessing to the imagery of the body. So I'm very interested in how the body expresses w- what we need, what it needs in terms of images, single words that are sometimes very paradoxical or associations of words that are paradoxical and feelings that someone you cannot explain, like the feeling of the Ganges River, for instance. There's mm. not st- So that's where poetry comes from and for me a very important question is that in you know in 1475 or 1550 most people didn't know how to read so language had to be much wider than what it has become which is why the imagery was so important and with the print like you know the print when gutenberg printed the bible came a huge industry of woodprint of images, and they develop together. So that's where Tarot comes from. And I think the reason why it resonates so deeply with our time is that our time has a Barocco component in the fact that we are flooded with images once again. Everybody has, you know, Instagram and so many screens. So we are living in the image dominated culture again, but without one clear direction for meaning, philosophy, purpose guidance, purpose. So I think that's the reason why, because there's such a vogue of tarot in the last, and especially the Marseille tarot, because I'm talking about the original tarot. An English-speaking listener will most probably know the Rider-Waite tarot, which is a very recent artifact. Mm -hmm. It's more like a novel. It was created by the Secret Society of the Golden Dawn at the beginning of the 20th century. It's very interesting, very beautiful, but much less deep and rich than you know, the Tarot of Marseille, it's like having the Bhagavad Gita or, you know, I don't know, a right? uh, holy brook. <laughs> and yeah, and then, you know, a Tolle, it's all very nice, but you want to go back to the original, like, you know, the holy text, which is for me what the Tarot is.
1: Yeah, fascinating. This has been so interesting. So can you talk a little bit of what it means for you, transpersonal psychology and then more specific transgenerational psychology?
0: Yeah, so transgenerational psychology basically is the idea that part of our subconscious is shaped not only by early childhood experiences, whether they are seen from the Freudian point of view or from er, an er, a more like Ericksonian point of view, whether the subconscious is just, you know, a reservoir of repressed horrible things, which is kind of—I've done psych, Freudian psychoanalysis, so I can joke about it. Mm-hmm. You know, this horrible little pervert who's holding the key to the inner hell, which is kind of a summary of Freudian psychology. And instead, Erikson had a different approach. Uh, yeah, Erikson is like a reservoir of resources. Resources, yeah. So we, ha- we have basically those two main visions of the subconscious and, you- and Jung is somewhere in the middle with the collective subconscious. Mm. But basically, whether it's for Erikson and, you know, allies or Freudian, you know, domain, it's always about what I have experienced, maybe from the womb, if we go very far, into childhood, into my early ages. The, the the idea of transgenerational psychology is that an ax, an accident a trauma that happened to my grandmother is or whatever you know is somehow might somehow impact my own life. Mm. So now we have we begin to have proof of that in DNA. That's so, that some very heavy trauma can be transferred into DNA and into the next generations. That's the science behind it. Mm. In my experience, what I call transgenerational psychology goes all the way into the great-grandparents. Beyond that, we enter society. So the family tree would be me and the seven couples, basically, that bring me to life. My parents, both couples of my grandparents, and the four couples of my great-grandparents. And whatever happened in there, I need to know, because this is where I come from. It goes hand-in-hand with all the cultures that care about genealogy. Then there is a very French approach, which is not mine, which is completely psychotherapeutical, only in terms of trauma, blah, blah, blah. And there is a transpersonal vision of it, which is that the family tree is both what dooms us and what is really like the trap in our lives, like, you know, you will be a doctor like your grandfather or if my mother had a bad marriage, then there will be hatred towards them. And I'm, I'm simplifying it to the extreme. Yeah. Or, you know, in my case, three of, of my great grandmothers were widowed very young. And I realized when I was 30 years old that I had always been scared that the man I was with was gonna die. So all my strategies was like once I was in love with a terrorist from Corsica, once I was in love with a man who was going to fight in Bosnia. And then I fell in love with Jodorovsky, who was 37 years older That's than me. So fascinating. You know, so it's it's a very simple way of talking about it, but it it's it really has an operative aspect. But it's also the treasure. And there is the idea that by accessing one's uniqueness. By accomplishing one's purpose, which is always a betrayal of what the rational mind of the family tree wants. Because if we truly become ourselves, we will always kind of break the pattern. And we will somehow heal the generations before us. So this is very connected with... All the Caribbean idea of the ancestors, all the Chinese idea of, of, of honoring the ancestors, that even our dead ancestors can respond to our individual work, you know? So, I mean, it would take hours to talk about it in detail, but it has one great quality. A lot of the people who want to change the world and a lot of spiritual see- seekers, they're aware of the global general subconscious. And they're somehow aware of their own history most of the time. But why do communities often so often fail? Because communities are like tens or hundreds of family trees made to live together with people who don't understand that there is something in their subconscious that will create aggression, fear, you know, survival strategies that are completely not working. And they try to live together with 10 or 30 other people. And we see that failing all the time because there is, for me, the the family subconscious is bridging the individual to the collective. And that's the reason why it's so important to have some awareness of it. I'm not saying that everyone has to undergo a very deep psychotherapy, but to know what the knots are, what, what the... There are some very basic, you know, idiosyncrasies in every family tree that can also help us overcome cultural difference. Very often you see a couple get together because they come from completely different cultures. And while the hormonal, you know, and neurological craze is working, it's wonderful and then after three, four, ten years, they divorce because the cultural differences literally became a war. A war then, yeah. Yeah. You 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 relate to what yeah, I'm saying? I'm yeah. not delirious.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. I remember Gabor Mate was quoting this study that hundred percent of the children that whose mother was pregnant during the Holocaust yeah. had eating disorder. There you go. So but what you're saying is fascinating because, of course, we're looking, you know, in this time for a way to transcend this tribalism who's one of the main cause of the current state of affairs on this planet. So I visited w- several community, you know, Oroville in India and, and Pachamama and and Tamera in, in Portugal. And Tamera, they spend an awful amount of time of, they call it mirroring each other. So they meet three times a week for hours all the community and they do this work where you know they tell each other what they think about this beha- specific behavior you know out of love and trust because they believe together for 50 years and they, they raise their, their children together they you know it, it comes out of first you build the the trust and the joy and then you tell and then you mirror each other so because you were saying most of the community failed because people are not aware of the subconscious material that would create the psychological knots that then would create tension in in the interpersonal relationship. So, yeah, all this is fascinating. But so you are integrating this notion of transgenerational psychology in, into a system that you created that is called uh, Healing Fictions.
0: Yeah, because, you know, I started... When I met Chodorovsky, he had started working on the family tree. Sorry, Marianne, yeah. to
1: because... Jodorowsky is, you know, the founder of Saco Magic, and most of the people know him, but maybe not everybody. So maybe yes. tell us yeah. a little bit about him. So
0: I, I started really studying tarot in in depth when I met Jodorowsky, who is this Chilean French based in Paris, who was born in 1929, if I'm not mistaken, and who has been a very well-known filmmaker, a figure of the 70s, was always fascinated by both traditional mysticism and more like Northern American psychology. He wasn't into Freud at all. And uh, he made very well-known movies like The Holy Mountain and El Topo. And he's always had quite a polyphacetic career between being a writer, a poet, a filmmaker. Uh, He's also a comic book writer. But he he got very interested in this particular kind of psychology that can be derived from reading the tarot. And Also, he had started working on transgenerational psychology together with other, I mean, not together, but at the same time as other psychologists in France had started to, like Annon Slain-Schutzenberger, who invented the, whatever she calls it, the family, whatever. I don't remember because Mm -hmm. I don't like her work. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And Didier Dumas, who was a, a... psychoanalyst who ended up working with shamanism like you know drumming shamanism and who started working about the phantoms in the family tree and what is the absence of the father doing going from a strictly Freudian approach to really a transgenerational approach and in my own psychoanalysis before I met Chodorovsky, I realized that I was haunted by the fact that my favorite grandmother had lost her first husband in a car accident that she witnessed and I had like phobia phobia of driving My name is Marie-Anne, but Marie-Anne is like Marie-Jeanne, and he was jean John. So I kind of, I was born like, you know, three days apart from his birth date. So I started trying to make sense of all of that. And when I met Jodorowsky, who was my first really like my, my root tarot teacher, even though I was already reading the cards a bit like whimsically at the time, he had a whole system prepared. And so I went on with my, with my psychoanalysis and brought all this material to my shrink, who was a really like, you know, basic Freudian psychiatrist, like very French. And we started developing together the theory for the family tree that ended up in a book, in a book called Metagenealogy that is available also in English with Inner Traditions, where we exposed an, a proposal for looking at the family tree, understanding the knots that are basically like, you know, the automatisms that drive us, like for instance, the incestuous knot, like absence of mother of, of or father creates a fixation of wanting to be one with mother and father. Excess of motherly attention or fatherly attention in whichever of our centers, it can also be sexual abuse, creates the same kind of knot. I don't want to go into a full on, you know, pedagogical proposal, but it becomes, So obvious when you look at it in reality. Like for instance, narcissistic parents who will name their children after them. You know, Roberto Rossellini had a first son, he called him Robertino. There you go, dead. The kid is dead. He can't live. He has to be the photocopy of his father. And we don't know that we're doing that. And then you see the father and the and the son and they wear the same clothes. It looks cute. But how do, we have to ask the question, how does a human being develop if they are not allowed in an early age to have at least their own name and at least you know, wear their own colors? So it, what I love about this work is that it goes back to very simple ideas of what is the best thing I want for a child, whether I'm a father or mother or not, whether it's my child or my inner child, or my parent as a child, or my grandparent as a child, or my neighbor as a child, or my enemy as a child. And so it makes us rethink what growth is. Blah, blah. I mean, I could go on forever, but you have to stop me at some point.
1: (laughs) But tell us how does healing features?
0: So when Jodorowsky had developed that people wanted a lot of that. So we started teaching a lot in Spain and then he was bored of it because you encounter so much suffering. You know, the family tree is minimum 15 people plus the brothers and sisters.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it is it is the cruelty and suffering and failure and, you know, dead hopes of all these people and their failed survival strategies so he kind of handed it to me like oh you go do that (laughs) you know and so I worked very extensively in that until I realized that's not what I want to do I'm an artist I'm not Mother Teresa this is too much at some point I was almost after like 10 years of this of making that like maybe a quarter of my work I was physically sick so I started thinking how can we turn this into something that's attractive and actually doable for people. And I realized that one of the things we do with the family tree is set a, an individual goal and kind of harness the power of the whole family tree into our own goal. Like, I want to sing or I want to create a production, a producing company. How does my whole family tree want to do that? So in order to do that, we have to go back to classic shamanism, which is integrate allies, create alternate endings for stories, use the power of active imagination so that some of the burden is lifted not through rational work, not through just digging into the problem, but kind of shortcuts or skillful means that is very much akin to, you know, when we talk about psychedelics and psychology and and poetry, I immediately think of Richard Albert Randazs. Because one thing he says is that when he met his teacher, he met a practice and a devotion to an enlightened human being that surpassed the psychedelic aspect. And one other thing he said, he said, if you're angry and you start processing the anger, and that's that's true for us or for the whole family tree, you make it into a thing. What is it that allows the anger to stop existing? And in his words, it was the practice of the mantra, the chanting, the devotion to the guru, which is basically the opening of the heart towards a space that that is wider. So art and beauty is also wider. So, you know, I don't demand to people who work with me to have a specific spiritual path that they rely to because people are allowed to just worship beauty or the the forces of nature. It doesn't have to be a theistic or philosophical, like in Buddhism, kind of horizon. But I always ask, what is the wider, what is the beyond, what is the horizon? And how can we use the power of that? Like I said, the feeling of the Ganges, for instance. Mm -hmm. I am in an Advaita, Path. My teacher is Arnaud Desjardins, who had an uh, Advaita teacher in India, Swami Prajnan Bad, which I consider my root guru. So when I connect it to the feeling of the Ganges, I do connect to my spiritual path. But you can connect to it as Yamanja, you know, the goddess of the of the sea and the waters in the in the Orishas. You can connect it to it as the strength of nature. You can connect it to it as Mary or Mary Magdalena. So then we create a specific form that will be our quote unquote religion. In my case, I always say my religion is tango, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know. You can make anything into your religion, but how do you connect to something that you know is free of fear, absolute love and kindness, absolute intelligence, absolute benevolence, and that it will support you? That is the principle of healing fictions to generate alternate narratives, either in a personal embodied way, which would be more like focusing. So we sit, we ask a question, we go into the body, and I help the person guide themselves into their bodies to not go into the places that will be hell, but to go into the places that will create solution, that will be the individual format. We can create it in an interactive way. I have a series of Procedures where people interact either with objects or with acting or with speaking. And it can also become a collective act, in which case it would be more. I mean, for me, for instance, in Mexico, in a little village which is called Isatlan in Mexico. During the pandemic, an abuela of 92 years old started asking the women to knit squares and, and you know, um, stars so that they would cover the streets of the city to make un toldo, how do you say, like a shade. A, a shade. So now the whole village is covered in colors. Mm-hmm. For me, that is a healing fiction. I see. We are stuck at home, we're going to knit. I see. And when we can go into the open air again, what we have knitted in the shade will provide the shade that we need. Yes. So, for me, it's not just a technique that I do, it's something that I study in reality. Some of the documentary films can become healing fictions because they tell the true story that has been hidden at some point. It's the idea that life can, in life, you can create alternate endings and even alternate beginnings. And that is based on the neurology that whatever you remember from a strongly impacting fiction has the same status as what you remember from something you've lived. In mm-hmm. your brain, it's the same memory. So how do we do? We make the fiction real? It has to be embodied. It has to be juicy. It has to be connected with your body of emotions. It has to have a lasting power, a flavor. You know, that's what ad- active imagination does.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. But just to to bring it a little bit more into a practical application yes. of, of all this knowledge of yours i remember when we did this introductory course on tarot there was a very simple exercise you asked three questions and everybody then then everybody wrote down these the answers and then you connected the three answer to our Ancestry. It was yes. so obvious.
0: Yeah, the, it's, the, it's one of the tools I've developed. It's the, the question of what is, your, what is your vision or your goal in life? And that, is, that can be seen from three different points of view. One is your big, big compass, like, you know, this idealistic, what, how could I die in peace? What would I, what, what would I have achieved? Yeah. So that would be the great goal.
1: Yeah. What, what, what would I? What would I want to have achieved on the deathbed? Yes. Yes.
0: Then you have the 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 like the the desire of the heart, the thing that you would the unavowed dream. And if it's that you want to have sex with your neighbor, it's okay. okay. No one's going to read your paper, you know. But the thing that really bugs you, the thing that you really want, it it can be so selfish, it can be so shameful. Well, from, you know, from today into six months into three years max. Okay, in
1: the next future, yeah. Like,
0: oh my God, I really want this and I can't. And you forget whether it's possible or impossible or anything. You just let it out. And then there is a question that is very important. What is your recurring obstacle? Mm. And is it an inner or or an outer obstacle? Mm. You know, so for me, for a long time, my obstacle has been patriarchy, for instance, until I've learned to love it. And I realized this pig... And toxic masculine is actually inside of me.
1: Because your father was very authoritative?
0: Because patriarchy sucks, man. Yeah. You're an Italian, yeah, you no, know, successful man, know. you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it really sucks. Yeah. You know, being like a superiorly intelligent person, which I know I am. In very, I know I am. You know I have like very high IQ, etc. And having to like prove that you might be right to a series of really stupid men who are not even you know reaching the level of your toe just because they have the power to publish a book in a publishing company that has 15% of female writers and then they tell you oh you will have uh, you will have a, an article in le figaro but the person who deals with female fiction is not available what the fuck i'm not doing chick lit you know that's the story of my life yeah I mean let's I keep let's keep. suddenly that's very inter- I think yeah. it's a healing I fiction feel. I can feel I'm lashing it out on you yay
1: I, pr- I promise another full podcast on the problem of patriarchy you don't
0: have to I'm good now n- n- no oh but
1: I God. want I want to I come I come from a lineage of sexual predator now I know my father would never listen to this so <laughs> I think I'm fine dude so, that felt wonderful
0: thank yeah. you
1: but so just to leave so, our listener with. so okay, very important so, the
0: obstacle
1: imagine 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 you tell our listener to do this exercise okay
0: so please dear listener forget that i'm (laughs) such a witch (laughs) and focus what would you love to have achieved on your deathbed like that the thing that really makes sense of your whole life and if you call it unconditional love it's fine if you call it to be the richest person on the planet it's fine also anything and then make sure that nobody can see or hear you and ask the depth of your heart and maybe the depth of your sexual center or creative or pleasure center, what is it that you really want? And if, and if you had a magic wand, what would you get? Choose one, please, not a hundred things, the most important. And then go back to your vulnerability and think, what is bugging me? What is always in the way? Is it something that I carry inside of me or something that I carry that is carried outside of me? and find a name and a face for it or, you know, definition for it. And then write these three things down. Try to turn these three things into one coherent sentence of what you would really want to do or be or what you really would want your life to be. And now you can apply this intention of yours to what is it that the people in my family tree, my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, either could not do, or would not do, or would not allow, and actually really deeply needed. And you will see that somehow it clicks. It does. (laughs) And then what you can do is another step of the exercise that you did not do is, okay, now let's say that this is all granted. You know, that I am allowed to have sex with my neighbor, even though I have a monogamous commitment, that I I have reached unconditional love and I'm the richest person on the planet and that patriarchy is down forever. What does my own personal world turn into? What becomes possible? Out of that, how do I change my immediate surrounding and keep dreaming? How does the change in my immediate surrounding change the society at large? And what is the change that appears in the world thanks to my own realization? And from that changed world that maybe doesn't have war anymore, that maybe doesn't have plastic in the oceans anymore, or anything, you know, it has to be concrete. Start healing your family tree. What can I take from this new world and offer my great-grandparents that they didn't have? Maybe medicines that they didn't have. Maybe means that they didn't have, maybe ideas that they didn't have, and how can I change my grandparents, and how can I change my parents, and you can make it even into a collage, or you can make it into a story, this is what Jodorowsky did, he wrote a book, I don't think that it was translated to English, but which is called Donde Mejor Canta Un Pajaro, Where a Bird Sings Best in the family tree, you know, and it's been translated to Italian and to French. So he recreated the story of his family tree so that he had something solid to sit on that will allow him to be the person he wants to be. That's one example of working with healing fictions in the family tree. But another example is that, for instance, your child has a nightmare and is bothered or maybe a recurrent nightmare. And you sit with them and you have them tell the story of the nightmare in a safe environment, and you say, okay, now we will inform the part of you who dreams and sleeps that the story can end otherwise. Let's find an alternate ending to this nightmare. I started like that with my niece. And we start inventing so many ways that the nightmare can end. And then we start giving the child resources inside the dream. Like, you know, the kind of work you do with lucid dreaming. I've practiced it a lot, so maybe you know it too, no? In my case, when I have a lucid nightmare, where I can't turn the light on, for instance, or I can't get up of bed, now I have prayers that I use to scare the demons away, and I wake up immediately.
1: It's fascinating. Maybe let's just take one second to explain
0: what is lucid dreaming. So lucid dreaming is <clears throat> its a technique that is used in Tibetan yoga of dreaming, but it's been explored a lot in the 60s and 70s. Sometimes we are in a dream and something in us tells us that this is a dream. So from the spiritual point of view, it is a very important technique to realize that this awakened life is a dream and the same witness consciousness can be awakened so that we don't go astray and identify with our problems, desires, etc., etc. In the 60s and 70s, lucid dreaming was more used inside this whole, you know, new culture of the psychedelics and the shamanism, for for instance, trying to fly, trying to direct the dream. So it happens or it doesn't, but one th- way is to intention lucid dreaming, bring it into your nighttime intention, have, have specific object. It can be anything, you know, factor of remembering, like a gemstone or a glass of water on your night table, mm. to kind of like ask your subconscious to be able to do this. And then, so you're dreaming, whatever, I'm in my bedroom or whatever, and you wake up in the dream and you're like, oh my God, I'm dreaming. So initially you fall off the bike, generally, but then you can educate yourself to have a set intention. Like, okay, I will open the window and try to fly. And then you reach the limits. Jodorowsky told me, what's interesting is to uh, maybe suggest yourself to go through a wall. You know, do things you can't do in real life. But then you realize that sometimes you're stuck in a nightmare, which is basically the same thing as bad tripping with substances. So it's very good because you can create also, for me, when I have a a stuck nightmare, I'm oftentimes, or I can't get up of bed, or I wake up and I realize I'm dreaming. I wake up again and Mm -hmm. I realize I'm dreaming again. And it feels like, you know, sticky and stuck. In many traditions, it means that you're stuck in a dimension where there are phantoms, I'm not going to go into details into that, but that's part of, mm-hmm. you know, the story. So you can also have a set of tools for that. And you shouldn't be joking with that because there are powerful forces in those stuck, stuck places. So, you know, having an ally is important. Having, you know, but your ally can be even your dog or cat if you love them a lot. Having something solid that you connect with because the price to pay for lucid dreaming is also the lucid nightmare. There is a price to pay for everything. We have to be responsible.
1: That's fascinating. Thank you very much. With the last 10 minutes or so, I would like to explore a new concept, which I heard it for the first time from a community based in Austin in America, Aubrey Marcus and, and this other couple which wrote a book called Bequaming. Basically, what has happened in the last few years is that people that were not interested in spirituality people like you know, social entrepreneurs and, and, and people from the fitness world and people from the meditation world, they would start doing psychedelic, they would have a mystical experience, they would have experience transcendence, and they would then want to continue the search, but without the traditional mystical or religious base of what we consider the traditional mystics, which were mostly separated from society in a cave or in a mountain, practicing renunciation and asceticism, and and so I I feel there's a new cultural movement, or maybe I'm projecting because I want it to be created, (laughs) that is integrating this desire for transcendence that understand the limit of the mind. That you know, with the Enlightenment and and Descartes, I understand the cogito, ergo sum. I understand that we needed to rationalize to get out of the, the the you know the superstition and misery of the Middle Age. But I felt that this glorification of reason went a little bit too far now.
0: Absolutely.
1: And I feel that the neoliberal capitalism system has is rewarding the left brain problem solving alert non in touch with your emotion i read somewhere that you know in the first 100 um, ceo of the 500 companies there are like mostly people non in touch yeah. with their feelings you know the the traditional say of mind body spirit which you know has been around for a long time and some people raise the eyebrow but i still think is the right formula to live a more integrated and connected life without nonsense of excessive individualism and, and polarization and tribalism. Anyway, this long premise is to say, okay, what does do you think do you agree that how what is is there a future for modern mysticism and what does it look like?
0: So the best and most authentic very discreet spiritual teachers of the end of the 20th century all prophetized that there would be a spiritual awakening because it's so in this ob- in this moment in time yes because you know there's a law, in physics there is a very simple law which is the law of action and reaction and the pendulum has gone very far in one direction that has brought us cars and planes and surgery amazing things
1: the metaverse
0: but you know but yeah but it's just it's 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 the law of physics the law of life so that is a first and but what those spiritual teachers also said i'm thinking of a few names is that there would be a lot of fakeness into that mm. so i would like to remind us of something very important. Spirituality is not about the spiritual experience. The spiritual experience is a bonus. Most of the great great saints, they come back from the siddhis, from the powers, from the spiritual experience into the most basic daily life, humble, loving, patient nice. kind of life.
1: Helping others.
0: So, you know, it's really... and But the mystical experience is there, you're right, to kind of shift the focus. Becoming attached to the mystical experience can create what Chogyam Trungpa called the spiritual materialism mm. and the crazy idea that it can be bought, mm. that it is a thing. Mm. And we see that happening a lot.
1: With we'll retreat and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, or with, you know, even the millionaires, now they're trying to buy their immortality. So why are people like, you know, whoever, Elon Musk or whoever trying to buy their immortality or to buy their, their you know, their trip to other planets when this one is done? Because it is about deathlessness. Spirituality is about losing the fear to die. Mm-hmm. So it is about learning to die. And learning to die is about becoming nobody, becoming unimportant opening ourselves to the others, of course, it's, it reeks of, you know, Christian masochism. So we hate those words. We don't want them. So for me, we're in a very important moment where we have those two, you know, dangers lurking. One is pop spirituality, the beauticians of the soul. You know, the more expensive the retreat is, the the bigger the boobs of the instructor, the richer her husband is, the best you know? And then you can eat uneatable vegan food and be taught by someone yeah, who is incredibly so, stupid and so you're so funny. happy
1: about it, no? <laughs> and the right people go there, yeah. what you consider the right exactly. people. Exactly.
0: And the other danger is to be, like, stuck in, yes, but it has to be done this way and not another way, which we already know brought to, you know, massacres, religious fundamentalism, etc. So, I have a vocabulary in that sense, which can also be tainted, but I think in terms not of the feminine and the masculine, but uh, and m- please, not the divine feminine. I mean, let's not use this word, <laughs> let's just keep it out of sight, even though it's, it really is something a thing. but it's been overused. It's, it's turned into something that's for mopping the floor. Let's just talk about concave and convex. Mm right brain and left brain, humility and capacity of action, faith and surrender. So how can we become more wholly human? That's the reason why I connect with the Renaissance because the Renaissance had this idea of humanism, of a whole human being that was in whole connection with the planet. So you know, you're here in Ibiza, everything is wonderful. You swim and you encounter a piece of plastic. At, at best, because it can be something else in the sea. How do you feel in that moment? The first reaction is, I don't care. The second reaction is, I'm so angry at the person who threw this plastic in the sea. But this person is me. At some point, I have collaborated into that. The third reaction is the do-gooder, you know, goody two shoes, I bring the plastic back to the beach and I put it in the, in the trash. trash can, which is great. But the real For me, the spiritual is to acknowledge the heartbreak of meeting this piece of plastic in the sea, to be what Alice Miller calls the enlightened witness, Mm -hmm. which doesn't, you know, exonerate you from bringing it back into the trash, but to bear the heartbreak. That's what spiritual teachers do. They bear the heartbreak of the world. So whatever our attitude is, whether we're in the more traditional, more religious sense, or whether we're in the more exploring sense, putting the heartbreak, the compassion, the self-observation, the sense of humor, for God's sake, (laughs) you know, the sense of having our feet on the floor. For me, it's what is going to integrate all these all this movement that is happening right now, which I think is w- the only thing that can save the planet. I'm I'm really very certain of that. If you have a minute, I would like to tell you a dream I had. Absolutely. You know, I was invited by friends to Formentera. That was my only holiday in basically the last year. And I remembered we used to go to Formentera with Jodorowsky when we were in a relationship. And it's a place that kind of like supports intense dreaming. I don't use substances, so, you know, I'm very... I mostly don't use substance. sometimes I drink a glass of wine but mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I I keep being very impacted by the by the the energy of places and I had this strong dream that said to me unless the masculine acknowledges the importance of the concave this world is going to be destroyed and that cannot be done in the city so as ridiculous as you might Consider all these initiatives that are being done in the hippie ways and stuff because I'm very critical of all that. This is the right way to do it, even if it's imperfect. I was like, okay. And then I was walking to the beach and there was this man sitting on the beach and there were very low waves, but he was sitting, so the waves would splash in his face and he would turn to me and say, wow, that's wild, isn't it? And I said, well, it could get really worse. <laughs> and he didn't believe me. And then it was night. And there was a Chagall-like kind of sky with dark blue clouds. And in each cloud, there was a couple. And they were having, you know, they were interacting in all the ways that couples can interact, like resolving things. And I saw the beach at night, and there were, like, men seated, and there was a tsunami coming. I woke up in a state of high alertness, and I said, this is a dream for me. This man on the beach... He's inside of me. The man who's waiting for the catastrophe to come, seated on the beach, it's me. I have to remove myself from my city. Not necessarily physically. I have to be based in Paris for many reasons, family and stuff. But I have to uproot something about me in the city from myself. Otherwise, so, you know... When, when was
1: this episode in Fulmentera? That
0: was like the day before you arrived.
1: Okay. Recently. Yeah, yeah. Very recently.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's so easy to say, oh, yes, the masculine, blah, blah, blah. No, I took it as an individual warning mm. of, you know, try to be, even if it's not perfect, try to be where the vibration of even trying is, where people actually try to grow organic food, even if it's overpriced, okay, you know, but... Stop being critical about these things. Criticism is the city. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, that's the way it embodies. Mm -hmm. So it can look very blah, what I just said to you. But for me, that's completely connected with what you say. Yes, absolutely. It's it's it's
1: it's an awareness, right? And I just want to repeat one thing you mentioned about becoming nobody because Jamie Cato, a filmmaker, just did a documentary on Ramdas called. Yeah, the... it's
0: a phrase by Ramdas. Yeah. yeah.
1: It, and, and, uh, and people don't realize to what extent this is the key to go through life not to through the prism of your ego. And you can tell some people are stuck 100% in that. And anything they say or they think is through the prism of their ego.
0: Yes, and. and- It is a very evolved request, becoming nobody. My teacher, Arnaud Desjardins, said, the destiny of the worm is to become a butterfly. Mm -hmm. So the butterfly is a nobody to the worm, but, the caterpillar, but a sick caterpillar, a wounded caterpillar, cannot become a butterfly. Mm -hmm. So it has to become a caterpillar first. So first step is becoming somebody. And from that clear... Because, you know, Ramdas, he was a complete dominant male, Harvard, good family. He wasn't exactly good looking, but he was kind of a catch if he was going to be married, you know. And then he used so many psychedelics and it went really good for him. I mean, anyone else would have been destroyed. So he probably had a very good bodily structure. And when he was ripe, when his somebody-ness, like he calls it, was completely ripe, than he encountered. So this, you know, this desire of being completely surrendered to love and to the forces of life. So part of our job is to help people who still need, who are still wounded, still traumatized, and sometimes hide behind a facade of very strong somebody but are actually extremely crippled to touch their somebody so that the metamorphosis is possible. It takes a lot of tenderness and compassion and and. True mothering. And then the fathering is into, okay, now you're going to the chrysalis. Mm -hmm. But the mothering aspect is to learn to know if the caterpillar is ready or not to be handing to the father that will say, okay, dude, now retreat three days and, and, you know, three three years, three weeks and three days like the Tibetan retreat and now we're going to go the hard way.
1: Mm -hmm. But so what would you advise to the young generation, you know, there's a new book by David Brooks, who's a New York writer. It's called The Second Mountain. Yeah. A, it says the first mountain is the mountain of money success, and people climb the first mountain, and then some people keep on climbing forever, and they become a little psychopath, and others get bored about the view of the first mountain, so they come down, they linger in the valley looking for a second mountain, which is the mountain of purpose. Yes. Yes. And and so with my wife, we were joking that, you know, we don't really any more patient for first mountain people. We really like people in the valley looking for purpose or people that are building the second mountain that find the purpose. And now you just said that, you know, yes, the purpose of becoming nobody in service of other might need to go through a phase of be- becoming somebody. Yes. You might need to have the first mountain first.
0: Definitely.
1: So to the young to the people out of university today, the you know, young adult 20 to 25 yeah. that are looking for finding what to do with their life, what advice do you have?
0: I think it's a generation that has been plagued with excess of screens, excess of virtuality and even with pornography we don't talk about it but it's extremely destructive especially to the young people. For men and
1: women, you think? Also women have a pornography problem? Now, w-
0: look at the Instagram. Look at what young women are turning into. Wh- where do you think the model is? I mean, I remember being 15. We felt beautiful. Mm. There was no the standardization of what our bodies were supposed to be, what our attitude was supposed to be. So this whole virtualization of reality, whether it's by gaming or by porn mm. or by excess of the... Of Metaverse. The, yeah. Of, yeah, whatever. What I see in the young people is the need to have a proper way of going back into the sensing body. For me, because that is where sovereignty comes from. Mm-hmm. The sensing body has a wisdom of its own. It sounds very simple, but it's so important. We know in the body if something or someone is good for us. What, what confuses us is that mind that can fly into the metaverse. And I think that's the reason why the metaverse is such a huge economical and financial t- terrain, because the people who want to make a lot of money, they know they can manipulate us not me, <laughs> but anyone in the metaverse much more than they can manipulate a body that has a sound connection to the world and reality. So that would be my first uh, response.
1: So don't focus on first month or second and just focus on, on, on embodiment practice.
0: First and foremost, and not even practice, start loving each and every one of your organs mm. and parts of body. I have this beautiful, I was studying medusas at some point for fiction. I wanted to write that I never wrote. But I realized that there is one giant medusa that is composed of a lot of different medusas. So one medusa acts as the stomach, one medusa acts the eyes, etc. I love this idea because I start, start to see myself as you know, a community. So I could have a relationship with my stomach, a relationship with my little finger, a relationship with my left eye, who is different from my right eye. And shaman, you know, shamanism is that, is everything is alive. So I can have a relationship with my car, you know, and start to practice love in the most basic ways to love this glass, to love the water that was in it. It's basic tantra also in in a way, you know, it's it's practicing loving desire towards what's already here. For me, that's the ground. And then it's an individual question. Some people will need to have a professional realization. Some people will need to focus more on relationships and family. Some people will need to heal a trauma that they don't even know they have. A lot of the trauma of abuse is forgotten and hidden. Some people will have a direct access to some kind of spirituality. Because we're all different. There is Giancarlo yoga, Marianne yoga. You know, it, it's not like there is one yoga for everything. Reliance to what is essential to us has to be handmade and tailored. But for me, the base is the knowledge of the living body. So important.
1: Beautiful. Marianne, thank you very much. We're past, uh, we're past the hour. I promise my listener not to go too long. How... How can people find you if the and, and what would they what would you advise them to start with a certain book or a certain course? If some people want to explore the Marianne Costa world, how would you go about it?
0: I don't have a community <laughs> manager and I'm a very lazy communicator, so I do have an Instagram which is Marianne Costaro in a world like you know, Costa and Taro stuck together. I do have a Facebook that is basically the same. I mean if you Google me, you find me quite easily. But you know, I have been practicing when I was a student in literature, I was I went to libraries and I loved losing myself in libraries and being found by a book. Mm. So that's the way I use those the search motors now. Mm. I trust that there is a way of interacting with the internet that is extremely Playful mm. and where it's like a bit like you know Alice in Wonderland. Beautiful. So that's what I would advise people to do.
1: <laughs> so so tell 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 them five words they should put on the Google search.
0: Marianne Costa <laughs> Tarot. And that's it, because there's only one other famous Marian Costa, and she's a Brazilian makeup artist, (laughs) so I think they won't be confused. I'm pretty present, and I have, there's a lot, a lot of stuff is in Spanish, because I have had a lot of attention from the Spanish community. But outside,
1: outside of your own galaxy, what are the five words? Oh, which you think people would need to lose themselves. So
0: in English, it's complicated in English. Oh, oh,
1: oh, in other language, we can then on the show note we can make the translation. Okay.
0: So I would advise anything around, anything around focusing in the Feldenkrais method, anything around surrealism, mm. anything around.
1: What was the method? Sorry, that.
0: Feldenkrais, Feldenkrais method. Yeah, yeah. That's really where I got my education in. Feeling sense. Nice. I had an amazing teacher named Luis Ansa, but there is nothing in English about him. But he was an all my great teachers are hidden, so it's really hard. Yeah,
1: I, that's why it's yeah, uh, valuable. Uh,
0: Arnaud Desjardins <laughs> and Luis Ansa were really my two root teachers, but you can't almost can't find anything about them. I would investigate Tarot of Marseille mm-hmm. rather than just Tarot, because it brings you to a very interesting kind of like you Know, universe of images, and yeah, amazing. I think it. I think there is
1: enough to chew yeah. here. So thank you very much. We'd love to have you back to talk about you know modern feminism <laughs> and, and 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 patriarchy and 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 why you don't like the term divine feminine. And I
0: love it. I just don't want to use it right now.
1: I see. And and you know this is a you know I'm 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 learning. I'm I'm a, I'm a very debutant. On, on on classic Tantra and and David Deida, and this idea of of this integration masculine and feminine as an important aspect of, of living a balanced life. So I'm very interested in that. And you seem very charger on this topic. So we'd love to do that again. And then also we'd love to know once upon on at some at some point, who was the neighbor you liked so much? That- <laughs>
0: No, actually not. Actually not. It was a real example. I I think it's by watching people on the beach. (laughs) came from watching people on the
1: beach. Thank you for your time, Maria. That was great. Thank you so much for coming.
0: Thank you. Coca, su nara y su nara Coca, su nara y su nara